Welcome to Doing It Best with Elder Care Success, where we explore ways to relieve the stress, exhaustion, and overwhelm that we all face in caring for an aging parent, frail spouse, or partner. Fear, frustration, emotional and financial strain does not have to be your MO. Stay tuned as we dive into different and new ways of finding more joy together with those that we love and care for and while keeping our feet solid on the ground. Hang tight, there is a better road ahead. Today, my guest is a very special fellow and a friend, Doug Levy, who I would say is certainly a Renaissance man for sure. Doug and I met a number of years ago through another group of mutual friends, but he stood out among everybody there, especially in the whole emergency management and public safety environment as we sort of got into the discussion when we first met. But Doug has been an attorney or is an attorney, has advised police officers or police departments in emergency management on communications in public safety. He's been a healthcare and journalist, an author of several books. He's also been the head of communications for Columbia University Medical Center and previously held the same position at the University of California in San Francisco. He is among one of the most respected professionals in the field of public safety, emergency management, and care communications. And when you know what hits the fan and something has gone wrong. Doug is the guy that these professionals turn to to make sure that we, as people out in the field, actually know where and how to respond with the right support by the healthcare authorities. So with that, Doug, thank you very much for joining me here today. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much. I'd like to get into some of the things that we may not necessarily know about the healthcare communication that comes down to us at at street level. And how much do we really need to trust and know about this? Because we're not always sure we're getting the right information. There's no perfect answer. And there's also no ideal situation in reality. The ideal situation would be never having an emergency and always being prepared so you are controlling what's happening. On both sides, we're talking, right? Absolutely. But that doesn't happen. So the best we can do is anticipate what's likely to happen and learn as much as you can about the elements of whatever that response will be. So if you've got a doctor's appointment, you're probably going to look at where the doctor's located, how you're going to get there, what you need to bring with you. You might even make a list of questions. You do that in advance so that you get there on time and get what you need out of that visit. So this is like a scenario planning that a lot of companies will do in case of a high-risk scenario. You figure out if there's going to be a hurricane, how prepared is the police department, the EMTs, the fire, and obviously, you know, the hospitals, because we've had those situations over the years when hospitals have flooded or power goes down. And the scary part is what happens if I'm on the operating table, cut open, and all of a sudden the lights go out. That's why hospitals do have backup power sources for things exactly like that. That's also why A few years ago, when Louisiana was having some very severe budget issues due to some ill-advised management at the state level, they had some hospitals either closing or curtailing their emergency services. And the people that were making the decisions at the state level didn't realize that would mean factories had to close down because 
If you run a manufacturing plant, you want to make sure there is a well-equipped hospital within a reasonable distance. Case of an accident, right? You know, an arm gets stuck in something or... And if that hospital shuts down or if that emergency department shuts down, that factory is going to shut down. Now, we're actually having some issues, as I know, or I've heard, at least in, in this current day and age, where hospitals are downsizing and shutting down emergency departments in rural areas. I mean, there's a lot of them that are closing that the average person wouldn't really know about. I, I mean, I've heard that in some cases you might have an emergency department or a smaller regional hospital closed down and the closest emergency room could be 50 miles away. Or more. Or more. In fact, in 2020, so far we're on pace to have a record number of rural hospitals either curtailing services or closing down altogether. It is a very serious problem on top of the existing problems that we know from COVID that if you are sick and need hospital care, for the most part, at least statistically, your odds of a good outcome depend on where you're located. If you can't get there, even if it's poor quality healthcare, I guess poor quality is better than none at all. That's probably correct. There are many outstanding rural hospitals, and I, I have many friends who have committed their careers to serving in rural communities because it's a very, very inspiring environment to be working in. But it's not sexy for, for the young graduating doctors that are coming. I think New York State was, in the past couple of years, actually paying people to go into rural upstate New York as opposed to being in the cities where you get the stars. It's, it's you know, the Hollywood of healthcare, right? That's right. And there, there also have been several programs to encourage people to work in rural communities, and we need those. But the bigger problem is that a hospital that is treating the hardest cases on a regular basis uh -huh. is going to not only be better prepared for those hard cases, people who know what to do. And if you're lucky... Well, they have different accidents in, in more rural communities. Uh, the accidents and the uh, even in, well, you know, heart attacks and, and strokes are going to happen anywhere in whether you're in a rural or city environment. But the physical type of accidents are going to be different in a rural environment typically or a heavy manufacturing environment than they might be in a city that would have a higher percentage of, of service workers or elderly that, that have care that they can afford. Right. And of course, the other big factor is what's the degree of access to health care when it's not an emergency? Right. So, and that's at the doctor, so I'll call it the doctor street level. Yeah. Mate, that's probably not the right term, but it's the term I'm going to use. So I'm curious if there is no hospital for me to take mom and dad to, they've closed down and the next hospital in case of an emergency is 50 miles away. What am I as a family caregiver or overseer supposed to do? Do I call the emergency clinic and hope that they can handle it? What can we do? This is a good example where planning ahead is helpful because... So you move? Well, in some cases, perhaps. I actually, I had a conversation with somebody yesterday who was contemplating a move to a very different locale. And at the moment, she's leaning towards staying where she is, which is in a large city, because she has some chronic medical conditions and she's not comfortable being more than a couple of miles from a very good academic medical center. That's the kind of thinking ahead that is worth doing. Now, it's also a personal choice and with the average number of medications or chronic issues that somebody 65 or older has is something like four or five. I don't, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head. It adds up there. It's, it's significant. In many cases, I mean, these days, 
People are living longer. They're living healthier. They don't always need a lot of healthcare, but when they need it's, it, I think it's the last few years of life where things start to get. They say it's birth and at death is where right, and, and that of course makes sense. But a lot of this should be personal choice, and if you've got awareness of what you're moving into, that's fine. Now, if you're in a situation where you're already in a community where services are being cut back. That's what's happening. What the plan is. Now, this is where it's going to depend radically from state to state. If you're in a place like Maryland, there is a very sophisticated system across all the healthcare providers with very well organized and highly skilled emergency medical transport. So at least as of the last time that I have done any work in Maryland, I could say with great confidence that doesn't matter where you are in that state, you are within an hour of some of the best medical professionals. So they can be medevaced out or do something else. That becomes a, a cost factor in some cases, because I know that I've also heard that medevac or the helicopter scenarios have become very competitive. So the cost of that is not always covered by insurance, which can you get like a ah, sticker there, shock. There definitely are potential surprises. In Maryland, the system is actually operated by the state. The medevac system is operated by the oh, state. Oh, that's police. great. So it helps to, before you go anywhere, at least if you're planning ahead for yourself or if you're moving a parent, understand how the emergency medical transportation system is going to work for you and your plan. That's right. And I I know other people that make sure that they have insurance that covers medevac. And if you really are in a rural area, that's not necessarily a bad thing to have. I mean, I'm not recommending that people go out and buy insurance, but it's something to look at. Or move to Maryland. (laughs) Um, Right. And and there probably are other places that have similarly sophisticated states. I'm most familiar with that because that's where I was a practicing EMT. And we actually trained with the state police so that literally if we had a patient who needed transport, one of the firefighters at the accident scene or whatever might very well be put on that helicopter to help take care of the patient on the way to the hospital. That's great. Even though the the helicopter would arrive with at least one paramedic, usually two. But find out ahead of time what the system is. If a hospital is closing, I assure you that somebody in the community has given thought to where is care going to be delivered and how is it going to happen? It still may be a long way away. And no matter how good the helicopters may be, they can't fly in all weather. Right. So what are the contingencies? You know, one of the things I wanted to to also talk about is we're in this state of pandemic right now, which becomes a real challenge, especially I, I've known a number of people who've lost their parents during these this day. And it's it's not that that it was necessarily due to COVID. Some were older anyway and at a certain stage of life. But even still, being able to be an advocate when you need to, but you can't physically or aren't allowed to be in the hospital, though some hospitals are allowing only one person to go in as a caregiver versus a quote-unquote visitor. And there was a petition that was going around, which I signed and shared, to try and petition hospitals to say, look at not every older person has visitors, but they do need an advocate for them who understands their healthcare system, especially if there's dementia or Alzheimer's or other sort of cognitive issues that are going on and they, or they, they can't speak or hear. Is there a way that we can buck the system to say, you know, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. What do we do to, to get through and bulldoze our way through if we need be? This is one of the questions that I think every hospital executive and many governors and other officials and many, many, many families have really been wrestling with. And it's one of the most upsetting aspects of this infectious disease It's a balance between the safety of the healthcare workers, the healthcare professionals, 
the other patients and all the families. And because we knew so little about COVID-19 until hundreds of thousands of people got sick and doctors and nurses got a lot more experience, we knew that this thing spread very easily and that it wasn't just from hand-to-hand or fomite contact. It was airborne to some degree. Keeping people away was the only prudent thing to do. You you have protective gear for the folks that have to be there, but you minimize the risk by keeping people out of harm's way. Obviously, this is going to be the mode for quite a while. Even if there's a vaccine, it's not going to change the world overnight. And not everybody's going to react the same way to a vaccine. So the current mode is probably going to be the way we are for many more months, which is scary to think about. So we're, we've learned a lot more and hospitals and other healthcare facilities are trying hard to adapt. It's upsetting for the healthcare professionals to see somebody who is desperately ill with no family around. And that happens even pre-COVID. I mean, it just doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's walking in with, with a family member or an advocate. That's, that's absolutely right. And I mean, I've many times seen doctors, nurses, whatever, just spend a little extra time with the patient that has no family visit. And they're still trying to do that in the COVID area because they're properly equipped to do that. But we are learning more about how to protect people, but it's still very infectious and very dangerous. So it's true. There are more and more places where one person at a time may be able to go in. And just stay there and not leave. It's, it's, That's I, right. Know, my my, my advice to those people is say, all right, if mom or dad have to go to the hospital, you've got their go bag with their information and all the support that they need. Make sure you have at least an extra pair of underwear for yourself. <laughs> That's your go bag, undies. That's right. right. And to the extent that you have your own masks, that's, you know. Because the hospitals may not have enough for you. They're struggling to keep up with the needs for their own people. The other thing, though, is think ahead to what you can do so that communication still exists. This is not the ideal at all, but in many instances, FaceTime or other video communication is the best we can do. And many healthcare facilities will help. If it means having having a social worker or somebody else holding the phone so that the patient can see the picture. You give them their phone number because my, my dad never dealt with a cell phone. And even if he, and we, I got him one at one point for fear that when he was driving that he would get lost and not be able to find his way back. And I said, at the very least, all you do is hit home and it'll tell you, it's like, oh my God, that's amazing. He would say. But even still, the neuropathy in his hands and slipping it out, he just didn't have the dexterity in a 90, well, at the time, like 95-year-old hands. It was just not there. So that's, that's hard. Or if somebody's got cognitive issues, they can't do it. What I would suggest is if your elders already use a mobile phone, so if somebody just can't, if somebody can't touch the phone because they don't have the feeling in their fingers or the dexterity in their hands are just not good enough to do so, what are your recommendations? You know, if you're sending your elder person to the hospital for whatever reason, I would put a label on the back of the phone with the password. And even if the person going to the hospital has never used FaceTime, make sure that it's on the phone, that there is a video chat program on the phone. But if they don't have a phone. If they don't have a phone, get them a phone. So just get them a phone, sign it up, put their information on there and say, this is Audrey May's phone. This is how you reach your daughter. Please call and FaceTime. 
with instructions with it. Exactly. And the reality is that really in this day and age, everybody ought to have a mobile phone. Yeah, there's probably less worry about the theft in a hospital for phones because everybody has one at this point. Let them have it. The bigger issue is, am I going to be able to communicate with mom or dad? I know a a friend had, uh, her husband was in the hospital during this time. And what happened is because he was kind of out of it with the anesthesia, one of the local nurses that came to help him in recovery took her phone, had the phone number of his wife, my friend, and made sure that the communication happened, which was great. So it was just an intervening nurse or professional that was there to do it for her, which, which was special. So then Breaking the rules, we can't always do as much as we'd like to. What are some of the other ways that we can actually consider preparing for like a larger emergency should it happen? I know one of the things that I've always told people is make sure you understand where your emergency facility is in proximity to where your parent or yourself are so that you know who they are and where they are and how quickly they can get to you and then sign up for uh, evacuation support if you need it. That's right. You definitely want to be in touch with the emergency services for your Your town because i mean for example i i I talked to somebody a couple days ago who lives by herself and Uh has had medical issues and i was really pleased to hear that the emergency people in her area already know that she's there by herself and if there's an evacuation she's going to need help that's the sort of information that the emergency responders appreciate having it makes their job easier in the long run, right? If they know that, that Mrs. Smith needs to get out because she's got an oxygen tank that needs to be moved with her or something else or is not ambulatory, can't walk uh, or can't hear or is blind or whatever the case may be, uh, hopefully they're not living alone at that point. But even still, floods come, you've got to get them out. That's right. Or fires. I mean, you're, you're in California, you're dealing with fires, which is a bigger issue. And the reality is that we've gotten a lot better at helping people know in advance that they may need to evacuate. Unfortunately, the disaster of 2017, when we had a lot of people blocking the roads because the evacuation instructions were confusing or the messages didn't reach the right people. Hopefully we haven't gone through that once. We don't have the problem again. One thing that most emergency services are very, very good is after every major incident, there is a systematic review to see what worked, what didn't, what needs to be done better next time. Now, do they talk to other emergency groups in in a state? So they say, you know, I'm in X place, Connecticut, and you're in California. How did you, if we, especially if we're doing a national emergency, right, versus a local or San Francisco to LA with the fires, right? Absolutely. They, they actually talk to one another and say, this is where we screwed up and this is how we fixed it, or we don't know how to fix it. How did you handle it? That's that's exactly right. So, for example, I'm a member of the, Associa- uh, the International Association of Chiefs of Police. I'm in the public information officer section. And at every one of our meetings and informally between meetings, police departments that have had major incidents do a briefing. And that's exactly the way it goes. It's like, the, here's what we did. Here's what we think we would do differently next time. I'm thinking that we have a different impression as a society, I think, of police officers, you know, good, bad, and indifferent right now, and and responders. And part of his political environment, I'm not going down that road because my husband was a responder, so I'm like pro-responder, and and I get it. But Actually, I just want to be clear. You can be pro-responder and pro-reform, and that's another program. My question, though, is really how much does the bravado come into play where they may not necessarily be willing to admit 
that they screwed up in front of another peer? Does that happen? That is a great question. So that is real. It is a problem. From my experience, it is generally a problem in smaller communities and less experienced leaders. Got it. That would make that would make a lot of sense. And then when you have a, a group of responder units that have gone through this review process, how much information actually gets out to the community? Or do they not reveal that saying, okay, we've made mistakes. We want our citizens to know that this is how it's going to go next time. Or is they pretty close to the best about it? It depends. So for example, one of the things that we learned in 2017 is that the agencies that need to respond to a wildland fire must do a lot more communication with a lot more people. So in the past three years, if you live anywhere in the range of a potential wildland fire in California, you've probably heard from your emergency services many times. What to do when the fire comes close, don't wait. Here's what you can do to prepare if you need to evacuate. Here's what you can do to keep your home from burning. And for example, where I live, we've had to remove a lot of trees and brush. The garden hose is not necessarily going to save your house. Garden hose is not going to work. It's going to put yourself and possibly others in jeopardy if you're relying on that. What's most important is get those juniper bushes out because that's how homes wind up going up in smoke. My neighborhood does evacuation drills. We used to do them as kids in Long Island where I grew up. To make sure you can get out of the building you're in. But here, and I know at least the next two towns over, all the emergency services do actual evacuation drills where it's planned ahead. Everybody knows that at 10 a.m. on Saturday, you're going to get the alert as if it's a real emergency. And if it's inconvenient, too bad, get your butt out because they're going to find you, right? Right. And the first time they did that, I was I was an observer and it was really interesting to watch because part of what the agencies were testing was, do people get the alerts? Wow. I wouldn't even think about that. You would assume that they would get the alerts, right? Well, but the problem in 2017, the reason why at least some of those 43 people died was that they did not get the warning. They did not know that there was a fire on the hill near them and they needed to get out. Doug, let me ask you, we're talking right now about individuals and homes. Yet there's such a growth in the assisted living facility, the the care facilities for older citizens or family members. And I'm wondering, my immediate inclination is to look at those and say, all right, you know, they're good for some people and and other people they're not so good for. However, if there's, I think that on average I've heard there's usually one caregiver for anywhere between 12 to 15, sometimes 20 residents in a facility. That is really scary when you've got an emergency situation. And of course, my first thought is if there's a situation that becomes a major problem and trauma for a region, those caregivers, guess what? Your folks are SOL. They're not going to care about it. They're going to care about their own family and get the hell out of there and go figure out how they protect their own kids and parents, not necessarily yours, that's right? not always the case, but that is... That's, that's the worst case scenario, but expect it as opposed mm-hmm. to assume that it's not going to happen. What does a responding group do when there's only one aid, you have 15 people to evacuate per aid, and there's and you've got 300 people in a facility? Somebody's going to die? So fire departments and emergency services do plan and prepare for those scenarios. I mean, for example, in the department that I was in, we had one 
nursing home that was a high rise. In fact, it was the only high rise in that neighborhood, in the immediate neighborhood. And we knew that a fire there was going to be incredibly difficult. But we had plans for that. If there was an alarm at that building, it was an automatic multiple alarm response. So it's not just one department, it's multiple departments. I visited a number of facilities not too long ago. I, I sort of do what I call secret shoppers <laughs> to just to, to look and see what's happening, just my own edification in, in different types of care facilities. And one of the questions I always ask is, what happens in the event of a fire? And the average response, and I'm I, even in older buildings, I'm not sure that this actually is true, but it's their response is, oh, you don't need to worry about it. These doors close and it's fireproof and it stops the fire. Well, I'm not necessarily sure that's, when you close a door to a unit, it may help, but it's not going to necessarily stop a fire from burning down a door, unless it's a metal door. Well, it depends. Actually, if they've got fire stop doors, that would make me feel reasonably confident. So how do you find out if they're actually fire stop doors? Do you, do you ask or do you go to the fire department and ask? Some of each. It's going to depend on the community. I can tell you that in modern construction, there are many very good ways to build essentially a fire safe building. And in fact, in New York City, many of the deaths in fires occur when people do not stay in their apartment. Oh, it's like the movie Backdraft. You open the door and then the air is sucked in and or sucked out. Backdraft is certainly an issue, but it's actually usually because they wind up getting stuck in a hallway or a stairway. Or they go down an elevator when they shouldn't. It's usually people getting to a place where they can't breathe. That's good to know. You you plan if you've got parents or in a facility to say you, know, you should practice your own drill with them and what to do and hope that they're going to remember if that's the case. Well, great. So so the first thing that I would want to know if I was considering having a loved one move into a facility is find out what is the fire plan, what is the construction, is it up to code? I hope it is, but uh, to me that's more important than what food they're serving. Yes, although that's important too. I got it, but if they can't get out. Right. Some of that, I mean, you can eyeball things, walk around. Are the exits marked? Are there fire extinguishers someplace that's visible? Do they have automatic external defibrillators marked and available? Are there pole stations or other ways to alert either emergency services or some central desk? You know, that's really good points. Of the places that I've seen, I have not, as I remember or recall, seen any of those items around. I think one I saw. They may be there. But they're not inside. They're not in plain sight. Conceal them, but make them still accessible. But they, in most places, they need to be marked with lights and signs. Walk around the outside of the building. Are there emergency exits? And are any of them obstructed? Are there hydrants? Is the place for the fire engine to stop blocked by something? Or is the staff using it as an extra parking space? That's great points. And those are so simple for us to do. I want to sort of jump into some of the issues real quickly before we're done. We talked privately beforehand a little bit about some of the emergency situations that happened during Hurricane Katrina. Now, that was a number of years ago, but the advent of changes in weather patterns today are creating the fear that that, I call it the fear, maybe a little bit of anxiety, this could potentially happen again. And Memorial Hospital, there was a book called Five Days at Memorial, which we talked about, and the story of what had actually happened when they couldn't 
they actually couldn't get people out of the hospital. And some of them were extremely obese. And a lot of the staff members went home or were off their duty. So they couldn't get to the hospital to provide the care. And towards the end, when they couldn't get anybody out, and actually, I think the emergency management system, if I remember correctly, said that they thought that everybody was out and they provided the emergency relief to other hospitals, not Memorial. So what they ended up doing was making truly life and death, I'll call them euthanasia decisions of who's going to survive and who's not going to survive when somebody can't breathe anymore and it's 120 degrees inside and there's no air ventilation or there's no way to get the pumps going because your entire backup system is underwater. Those things actually do happen in hospitals, correct? I mean, they make life and death decisions like who's going to live and who's going to die. They're not supposed to happen and... What happened in New Orleans was horrible on... It's a horrific tragedy, but lessons to be learned, too. Absolutely. And I do think that there's been, just like after Hurricane Sandy in New York and every other major emergency, there have been lessons learned. And what's called crisis standards of care is a concept that has been highly evolved since Katrina. It's a concept that's been in place for longer than that, but Katrina kind of brought it to the fore. This is a methodology for hospitals to hospitals and other healthcare professionals to manage resources when there are too many needs. How do you decide who gets care and who doesn't? When I was being trained as a rookie firefighter, we had to go through training for potential mass casualty incidents. And part of that training is understanding who gets the care first, just like they do in um, in field operations with the military. You know? Exactly. If there's almost no chance of survival, the resources need to go to somebody who could potentially make it. No healthcare professional ever wants to be in that position. And I would argue that no healthcare professional in the United States should ever be in that position. However, when really bad things happen, like 9-11, although that did not turn into overflow of patients at hospitals because people perished, but the expectation was that emergency departments were going to be overloaded. The more that you anticipate for that, the better. And in the case of COVID, most hospitals planned for what, what's called surges. What, what is the normal maximum number of patients that can be admitted? And then if that's exceeded... What's their backup system and what can they do? Yeah, no, I, I get it. We did that in New York. We did that in San Francisco. And you have a surge capacity. And then you have other limits that come into play. For example, what if you've got 30 patients that need ventilators, but you've only got 28 ventilators? How do you decide who are the two people that don't get the vents? Crisis standards of care, when it is turned on, when that's declared to be in operation, puts into place a system where the folks who are at the bedside are not the ones making the decision. Oh, so they um, emotionally remove them from making the tactical decisions that need exactly. to, to be made. That's, that, you know, that makes a lot of sense. It, it probably cuts down on PTSD, which is going to happen in these kind of cases for clinicians. But uh, you know, sure that there's, there's, there's always an ethicist involved. You've got to have somebody who's thinking what's the right thing to do, because it's not always obvious. You don't necessarily just let the oldest person go. Yeah, being, being able to step back and see the picture a little bit more clearly is so important on anything. And crisis, was it, you said it was uh, it's called crisis standards of care. Crisis standards of care is something that we should even ask about, right? Do everything they can to avoid it. And I know that once the dust settles on COVID, we're going to find out the extent of the heroism that worked. I'm aware of crisis standards going into place in 
at least two regions, but relatively briefly, I don't know how many people died because of it. Too many, because one is too many. But the enormous dedication of the healthcare professionals, their ability to improvise and find ways to extend limited resources to take care of more people is pretty amazing. We are very lucky in the United States. In spite of everything, we have healthcare professionals who absolutely defy the odds and show up to work no matter what craziness is happening around. We absolutely do. We're very fortunate about that. You know, we're just about out of time, Doug, and I want to say thank you for everything that you presented here. I know we have a couple of other shows that we'll do together because there's tons more information I'd love to dive into, especially from a family caregiver perspective. But just as a quickly wrap up on the whole COVID issue, as much as the crisis has been difficult for everybody in general, and this is my personal opinion, I think that our country has done, from the healthcare perspective, a pretty darn good job considering that this came and hit us out of the blue. Yes, there were signs, but I don't think we could have ever imagined what would really happen. And it's to people like you that have been able to allow us to have the ability to communicate and share that uh, on a better level so that our healthcare system can work better for us you know, the citizens here that are that are caring for people we love. So I want to thank you for that. Well, I appreciate that. But I, I have to say that one of the things that has been, that has really gone wrong with COVID is that none of the, I mean, tremendous emergency planning has gone into preparing for major disease outbreaks. And we we understood what, what it would take when there's hundreds of people who need hospital care and the hospital doesn't have room. None of those plans anticipated no federal coordination. So the supplies that are needed everywhere, the testing, the standards and guidelines that we've turned to the CDC for, Mm -hmm. those were missing. And we can't let that happen again. So I'm going to stop it at this point as as much as I want to go on for another three hours. I'm not sure everybody else wants to listen for another three hours. I could be wrong. The key is to think ahead about what's likely to happen and make sure that you're prepared, not just for the best case scenario, about the worst case. In anything I've ever done, I've said, always prepare for no, and you'll know how to get to yes. So on that front, Doug, thank you again for being a friend, for doing what you do for everybody in the healthcare system, and and for those of us who are recipients of the work that you do out there for everyone. So thanks, and thank you for being a guest here on Doing It Best with Elder Care Success. Thank you so much. We'll see you soon. Take care. This show is sponsored by Caremanity, the publishers of How to Survive 911 Medical Emergencies a step-by-step guide before, during, and after. For your own personalized free file of life, go to www.howtosurvive911.com. All trademarks, brands, and comments are not intended to be substitutes for medical, financial, or legal advice. Please consult a medical, legal, or financial professional for issues relevant to your own personal situation. This show is produced by Caremanity LLC. All rights reserved. Copyright 2021 Caremanity LLC.